of the Kaiju Kingdom Podcast. I am your host, Chris Eaton. And if you are wondering, no, no Jessica today. Uh, that is because we are on the cusp of G-Fest and the San Diego Comic-Con. Arguably our busiest time of the year. And Jessica is prepping for both those shows. If you're listening to this uh, upon release, we will be in Chicago for G-Fest. Come on down. Uh, we will have a panel that this coming Saturday. And then a week from that, actually almost a week, that Friday, uh, we'll have a panel at the San Diego Comic-Con as well. Uh, more details on that on our social media. That being said, I wanted to get something out before we took off. And we are on the cusp of the 10th anniversary of Pacific Rim. And looking back at it, Pacific Rim is essentially responsible for the creation of this podcast. Um, we've told the story a few times. I've told it a couple other places as well. But uh, Pacific Rim is kind of how Jessica and I met. We were working press lines way um, 10 years ago. My God. Uh, even actually a little, little more than that. So this is going back ooh, 11 years at this point. But um, Pacific Rim is coming out. First time anyone has attempted to do anything close to like a live-action anime slash tokusatsu kind of production here in America. Um, <clears throat> so when I met Jessica working the press line for um, a Warner Brothers animation, I think it was Justice League Doom at the Paley Center out here in Beverly Hills. Um we got to talking, and I had brought up Pacific Rim, and she's like, oh, oh, do you like that stuff too? I'm like, yeah. You know, the story goes, we'd swap back and forth, like, well, are you into this, are you into that? And then the one thing that she listed off that I ironically was not into out of all this cool uh, dude stuff was monster trucks. Monster trucks were a thing that I never quite got into as a kid. She's like, all right, four out of five, that's good. And it started this, uh, this, this, uh, uh, blooming friendship that we now share today and this podcast that you hear because, uh, later that, uh, later in that summer, ironically back at San Diego Comic-Con, once again, working the press line for a, another DC movie. That one, I remember the very vividly, that was Justice League Flashpoint, a fantastic movie, by the way, uh, one of the best animated movies that Warner Brothers has ever made. Um, she and I had just gotten done interviewing Carrie Elwes, who, let's just say, was enjoying some libations before that. Um, as, uh, as we were wrapping up, I was rushing to do my next presser, and she stopped me. Uh, she just goes, Chris, Chris, I'm like, what? She's like, uh, I want to talk about some business. I'm like, what is it? She's like, I want to do a podcast. And I'm like, oh, okay, here's my email. And we went our separate ways after Comic-Con, got back in touch, and uh, two months later, the Kaiju Kingdom podcast was born. Um, you know, literally out of, you know, only knowing each other for, you know, a couple of months, and even then only talking to each other maybe a handful of times. So that goes to show uh, the very trusting, very wonderful human being that Jessica is. But I digress. 
So with it being the 10th anniversary, and this movie being beloved by many people, myself included, I wanted to delve into something that not a lot of people do. There's a few podcasts that go into this. They, um, you know, some go into more detail, some don't. And I figured, why not? Why not do it for, you know, kaiju projects? Uh, especially here on the uh, American side. There's, there's a long history in Hollywood of productions that get close to being made, that happen, but they take a drastic turn. Or, you know, they're just talked about and they never get past the script stage. And I am widely obsessed with these uh, with these projects. Uh, it's kind of the glimmering into the what-if of, of like an alternate universe, if you will. Um, so, we will be talking about the original screenplay. The, the spec script that Travis Beecham wrote for Pacific Rim that eventually got sold to Legendary and was produced and directed by Guillermo del Toro. And you're probably wondering, well, why why do you want to talk about that? I mean, the movie's great, yes. But man, that original screenplay is in many ways vastly different than the final film we got. And that's kind of what we'll be delving into uh, with this. Um, now, the big thing is, I'm not going to be reading the screenplay verbatim. Uh, partially because I'm pretty sure I can get in trouble for that. Uh, there are weird copyright rules, especially if you're putting this kind of stuff up on Instagram or uh, Instagram, YouTube or anything like that. Um, so, I'm going to be delving into kind of the nitty-gritty. What was and then what Guillermo himself changed. Um there's quite a bit some good and some would argue that uh we're kind of a uh well let's just say uh, a step down um with that let's let's just jump right into this so the draft i have is undated um i did get to speak to travis beecham a few years ago at comic-con briefly and i did bring it up i'm like hey there's this screenplay that's going around um, and for a little uh, backstory, uh, I got a hold of it about a year before Pacific Rim came out. So what I read versus what I saw were very different. And I was kind of picking this brain about it. I'm like, is this legit? And I kind of listed off a bunch of the plot points and changes. And he said, yeah, that's, that's my original, that is my original script. So he's like, that's, you know, obviously it's not the one they got made, but it is it. I'm like, okay, this confirmation. Um, so yeah, so this date, this draft is um, undated. Normally with screenplays, they date a draft, so they know where it's at in the production line. But this being a spec, most likely this was his original, I, I, I'm not seeing first draft, but this is what he originally, invented. you know, this was the first main thing that he sold. So... Um, for the story beat, so let's break down the story real quick, because overall, it's not too different from what we got. It's still a world where kaiju are coming out of a rift in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. All of the uh, Pacific nations are under constant threat of kaiju invasions. They still call them kaiju in there. The Jaegers are still 
uh, of the big aspect of it. Um, and it's still Raleigh and still Mako. But there's uh, quite a bit of, <laughs> of difference there. So let me get let me take you through the story beats of this screenplay. So in the original movie, we open with uh, Raleigh giving us a backstory of Kaiju Day, the rift opening, trespasser attacking San Francisco, and then the months to like a year that happened afterwards, the building of the Jaeger program, all the nations coming together, pilots, them starting to win, and then going into meeting Raleigh and his brother Yancey. We don't start with that. We actually open with Raleigh mid-fight with a kaiju, but we only see it from his perspective. He's in his uh, cockpit of his Jaeger, and uh, we find out this is actually a drift. It is... Uh, it's He's in um, a smaller version of the drift with a, con- uh, a counselor, and they're reliving the moment that uh, Raleigh lost Yancey, his brother, to a, uh, to a kaiju. Raleigh's depressed. <clears throat> he is... Um, not, he has not been piloting a Jaeger, and it's been about a year since all this has been uh, has been happen, you know, has happened. I'm really gonna pick my words better. Uh, so from there we go into Raleigh, pretty much just kind of bumming around uh, Point Magoo in California, which is where he was stationed. Uh, another big change of the opening is that uh, yes, there is uh, Raleigh is California based. His uh, his Jaeger, he and his brother were stationed uh, around Southern California. They, you know, Calif- pretty much much like the the movie. They, they they imply each country has their own Jaegers. This one, each uh, in this script, each region had uh, two. So there's you know two for Southern California. Japan has a couple. You know, everyone has two. So just in case anything happens. Uh, basically, move on from there. Raleigh is pretty much in a drunken stupor. He's depressed. He comes outside of, uh, he's leaving a bar, and he meets this, uh, new character that is not in the final, that is not in the version we saw. Her name is Felicity, a.k.a. Flick. That's how she is, um, addressed in the movie. It turns out she is a reporter and an old flame of Yancey. She was uh, Yancey's uh, girlfriend that Raleigh found himself attracted to. And uh, it is implied that Raleigh and Yancey kind of fighting over this girl is what led to them faltering in their piloting of their Jaeger and led to ultimately Yancey's death because Raleigh hesitated because they were bickering at each other inside, inside their heads, inside the drift, while they were, uh, they were fighting a monster, which is not a thing to do. Flick is writing a story about a possible uh, secret base in Midway, the island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, where uh, what we know is in the main film, the Pan Pacific um, Defense Corps uh, has a secret base there that is uh, that one monitors the rift, and two, they are conducting a lot of experiments there that are not the public is not aware about. Um, Raleigh says, no, I don't know anything. And, uh, you know, there's a big blow up between her and Flick. And she moves on. Raleigh goes back 
to his apartment and just sits in, um, pretty much just stews in his self-pity. On TV, while he's sitting there just being a depressed bum, uh, we see a news broadcast from Tokyo of a uh, kaiju battle that went down with another Jaeger. Uh, the kaiju was successfully defeated, but at the cost of uh, one of Japan's Jaegers. And once again, only one of the pilots survived. And they show on TV the surviving pilot being pulled out, and it's none other than Mako. So Mako is uh, already a Jaeger pilot in this version. And uh, we come to find out this was her first battle, too. So going on from there, <clears throat> Raleigh is contacted by Stacker, Stacker Pentecost, who is in this movie again. But his role is slightly changed as well. He does not head up the uh, Pan Pacific uh, uh, Defense Corps. He is he's a he's lower on the totem pole. Like he's pretty high up, but he's not the de facto leader in this one. And he recruits Raleigh to come to J uh, Japan because they are dangerously low on cadets right now. Because uh, as they you know as it's mentioned in the first movie mentioned here, it's kind of hard to get two people who can sync up. And uh, Pentecost knows there's something going on with the increase in kaiju attacks and doesn't want to leave Japan completely uh, defenseless. And so he's proposing that Raleigh comes to Japan to learn to pilot with Mako. Of which Raleigh begrudgingly accepts. So we get to Japan uh, where we meet... Two new characters who are, again, not in the final film at all. They uh, were completely omitted for this one. Let me get my notes right here. And they are Kauri and Duck, uh, Jessup. They pilot Tactic Ronin, the uh, Jaeger for the other operating Jaeger for Japan. And they are a husband and wife uh, duo. What? Kauri is. Uh, full Japanese, Duke is half Korean, half Australian and uh, they are kind of the hotshot team but they are an interesting thing about this, they're not Herc and his son like there is no real rivalry between uh, Raleigh and, and Duck, they actually they they're, they become like good buds when they come in, like it's a very like kind of uh, army like hey you're my new uh, you know you're my new bunkmate, so like let's let's make friends. Um, again, a very interesting change that, that was made here. So Raleigh's introduced to Mako by Stacker. Stacker and, and Mako still have something of a um, father-daughter relationship. It's not delved into at all in uh, the way that the final movie um, delved into it. But there is definitely a sense of a you know student teacher you know father you know daughter relationship here and she takes uh stackers um you know orders very seriously uh another interesting aspect in this script mako speaks nothing but japanese she does not speak any english whatsoever so when stacker's talking to her it's in japanese when she talks to stacker it's in japanese when she talks to raleigh it's in japanese and all of her dialogue is all subtitled and we'll get into that in a minute because that it comes into play later on. So, of course, Raleigh and Mako don't like each other. They are both they both have chips on their shoulders. 
Mako feeling like a failure because she lost her best friend, uh, who was her co-pilot, uh, on their very first mission. They had just gotten uh, their first dispatch to fight a kaiju. Even though she they did win the day, uh, she lost her, her friend of 20 years. And Stacker is proposing that her and she and Raleigh work together. And, of course, they butt heads. With Raleigh being more open, actually, to being partners than Mako is, Mako is not... Mako is the one that puts her foot down, like, no, I'm not going to work with this dude. Where Raleigh's kind of like, oh, okay, you know, I'll give it a try. Like, he's, you know, kind of being a... He's not being cocky. He's just kind of like, whatever, I'll, I'll just go with it. Like, a much more lackadaisical attitude about it. But we find that uh, as, uh, as the scene moves on, that both of these uh, characters are haunted by the respective deaths of loved ones. In, uh, this, in this script... Kaiji Day didn't happen in San Francisco. It happened in Osaka. And Mako was a little girl then. And she was one of the few survivors of Trespasser uh, showing up and just and laying waste to Osaka over a, a three-day siege. Uh, her She lost her family. Um, and it's, it's never given too much backstory of what happened after that. But we assume from the way the script is that Stacker might have found her and took her in and raised her. It's only lightly implied at times. It's never fully uh, spelled out for us. And then, of course, Raleigh, you know, the losing of his brother. So both of these people are kind of broken, and Stacker's job is getting them to work together. We have the montage sequence of them training. Uh, It's actually a lot longer in this one, too. This takes up a good chunk of the first act of the film of them trying to get to work together. Uh, they do various drills. The kendo stick sparring match is still there, but it's a lot more aggressive with Mako kind of being an asshole to Raleigh and hitting him. There is a juggling exercise that they do um, with uh, glasses that's uh, supposed to it's supposed to symbolize sync, being in sync with each other. So Stacker's constantly throwing more and more, and they're tossing back and forth, and, you know, Mako screws up, and she's frustrated with everything. Raleigh's just like, eh, you know, again, whatever. And finally, there is a, um, there is the first uh, drifting exercise that they do, which is where we see them combat a uh, uh, simulated uh, kaiju. Uh Go into that a little bit more. So that that's pretty much the first the first twenty five pages of the script. Uh, meanwhile, we follow Flick, and she's following a lead from an anonymous source in Lima, Peru, who has information about the rift and possibly a way to stop it. So the one thing the script does lay out is that while mankind is fully aware of the kaiju and everything's going on they treat them as like a natural disaster more than anything else they have a category system they're on the sarazawa scale which was a very nice little touch um i think that actually got ported over into the uh into the the main movie as well uh the big difference is that they're not um increasing exactly like they you know they got cat one cat two cat three cat four cat five 
Um, the first Cat 5 kaiju that they list in the script, it was Trespasser. Big, gigantic, very dinosaurian, very different from what the final design was. And that's another thing that this will break into in a little bit, is that the kaijus are very unique in this. And they kind of do vary in sizes and and classifications. So a lot of the uh, the kaiju that are that have been mentioned being fought in this have been category twos, category threes. You get the rare cat force. Like Travis Beecham understands hurricanes and tornadoes. Like this is all weather uh, uh, jargon that. Uh, if you know this stuff, like it is super geeky and super scientific, but it speaks to me. I, I'm I'm a fascinated with weather myself, and so this this stuff at all like if it, it feels like this is crap. I would have I would have written down as a uh, as a blood uh, is it, in my desperate attempt to write a uh, fun story. So Flick is in Lima, and here she meets her contact. Who is none other than Newt? Newt, uh, I believe, uh, Giobli, I believe, is you know the um, the other character from Pacific Rim. Uh, his uh, his buddy, the two scientists, are actually one character in this in this script. So Newt pretty much makes up the entire particle, you know, the physicist part of it. Um, he actually, the big difference with this is that he actually is not. Kaiju obsessed. He is more or less a um, a physician. He's a um, applied science physician, and he's been studying the work of his mentor, uh, Dr. Ivo Chinsky, who worked in the early days of the of the Pan Pacific program, and then mysteriously disappeared. But Flick, or not Flick, Newt has uh, been looking through his notes and he thinks that there's something more going on off Midway. And so he reached out to Flick to give her some information. So the two meet, and if Newt is, character-wise, still very much akin to the Charlie Day character. He's nerdish. He's a, uh, you know, he's about the same age. Science geek. Uh, just the big difference, he's not kaiju-obsessed. In fact, uh, unto a point, he's never actually seen a kaiju up close, and they're not important to him as in as much as studying the what <clears throat> he dubs the antiverse, which excuse me, <clears throat> which is the world where the kaijus are coming from. And he believes <clears throat> that they, uh, the antiverse isn't a mistake. Like, it's not some random thing. Like, this is all being done with a purpose. But he can't prove it yet because he doesn't have any of the notes. And all this stuff is actually top secret. The, world, the rest of the world is not aware that uh, there are actually aliens behind the kaiju attacks. Um, everyone just thinks that it's a weird, random phenomenon coming from possibly space or something like that. So, uh, Flick and Newt discuss some stuff. Um, Newt gives uh, Flick the information about his old mentor, Ivo, and that he is in the Australian outback because that's where they shipped him off to years ago. 
And so uh, she makes the call. It's like, all right, well, I'm going to Australia. So she checks out early from her hotel in Lima uh, where uh, Newt comes to meet her. So this is the next day after their conversation. Tells her, I'm going with you. And, you know, of course, it's the, yeah, no, 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 you're staying here. Like, I don't need you, you know. He's like, no, like, I'm going to go meet my friend. If you just happen to be going that, that way, you know, that's on you. And as they're having this conversation, Siren goes off in the background. It is the Kaiju Siren. And they are on alert. They, you know, the last attack was 15 days ago. Usually, you know, the they mentioned in the script that the time is starting to get closer and closer between kaiju attacks. First it was years, then months, then weeks, and now we're getting under a week. So that aspect has carried, got carried over into the main film. And, of course, since Lima's right on the, uh, the Pacific Ocean in South America, uh, a kaiju does show up. And this is the first real big kaiju battle we see in the movie. And it's the first time we really get a good look at what the kaiju are. And the first, first kaiju to attack is named Denge. And it is a gigantic... The best way that the script uh, describes him is a reptilian spider with, like, tiger stripes over it. It's a fascinating concept. Um, and uh, the way that the script describes it, giant, as it moves through the ocean, it's got that classic Godzilla, like, it's breaking, a, it's got a wake behind it, there's a there's a swell in front of it. When it rises out, they go deep into, there's heft, there's weight. It's crawling on these, it's got these spider legs that it's crawling with. And, of course, everyone is trying to get out of the way. So it's a scene of chaos. The uh, kaiju is off about half mile offshore when everyone's trying to get away. Newt gets on his Vespa, gets flicked to hop on, and they start booking it through the streets of Lima as a giant shadow comes over them and a rumble as, they, as something drops behind them. And that is South America's, at least Peru's, uh, Jaeger... Puma Real, uh, described as a giant bulk of a mech with a camouflage, like a red and green camouflage to it. And we get our first kaiju uh, Jaeger fight in this. And the fights are very, you know, they're not too different. The, the Jaegers described in this are much more uh, mechanized. They, uh, the older ones especially, they're not exactly as humanoid as the final designs we saw in the movie were. I would I'd be hesitant to describe them, but uh, if you've ever played uh, Battletech, they're kind of like a mixture of that with more modern, like, anime robots. So they're very practical, very functional. And this fight ensues. Missiles are being unloaded. Chaos is... Uh, all you know about the street. The as these two giants clash, the ground is shaking. Buildings are falling around them. Uh, cars are getting flattened, and uh, this is one of the first times we see the in this script especially the kaiju's all have some sort of attack, kind of like you know Godzilla monsters where it's not exact. None of them have beams like beam weapons, but they do have other methods. And Dengue has these hairs on his on his uh, legs like spider hairs. That it flings, 
and uh, the way the script describes it, like it looks like a volley of, of light arrows in the in the sky as you hear them hit the uh, the armor of the the Jaeger, and they just bounce off, you know, like it's nothing. But as they fall to the ground and get closer, they're the size, they're car-sized javelins, and they just start piercing everything left and right. So you have this volley of these kaiju spikes falling everywhere. And it they get into some detail. Like, you see the damage that these things do. People are getting stabbed. Cars are getting destroyed. Like, there is gore and chaos in the street. It's nothing too R-rated, but it's enough to hit home. Like, like this. yes, this is the world these people live in, and this is why these things are very, very dangerous. So, Puma Real ends up subduing Dengue by blasting a missile down its throat and blowing its head off. The corpse falls onto the beach, and the kaiju shuts down. Or the Jaeger, I'm sorry. The Jaeger shuts down, and Newt and Flick pretty much stop, look around, realize what they just survived, and Newt uh, says, whether you like it or not, I'm coming with you. So, from there we cut back to Raleigh and Mako, still trying to make things work. Uh, their, Their simulated sparring session with a kaiju does not go well. Uh, in, in this film, they actually fight Slattern, uh, who was ported over into the final film. But in this version, Slattern is not the... I believe he was the crocodilian uh, kaiju that they fight under the water. In this one, he's a giant snake-like T-Rex. And they fight him in a uh, simulation of uh, San Francisco, like right off... The five freeway, like up in the the hillside area of uh, the Bay Area, if you know that area, um, and you know the simulation shows he's very quick, very agile, and much like in uh, the second movie, where they use old kaiju uh, files, pretty much kaiju they fought before as training simulators. Of course, Mako and Raleigh can't make it work. Uh, they start drifting into each other's headspace. And they start getting a glimpse of what each other went through. Uh, it's during this time we really we get the flashback that we get in the main movie of Mako's uh, as a little girl surviving the attack of Trespasser. Now, in the final movie, in the main movie we saw, it was uh, Onibaba, and she's running through the street. In this one, she's in uh, her apartment in Osaka crying for her father who left to go get uh, uh, supplies from the grocery store and never came back. And then at the same time, Mako sees Raleigh uh, through Raleigh's eyes inside his Jaeger pod, in his compod, uh, fighting uh, a kaiju named Tortuga and seeing the moment, feeling the moment when Yancey dies. And so they start getting a better idea of each other. And they start to kind of understand, yes, okay, we are both broken people. And even though they're still standoffish towards each other, they're starting to figure each other out a little bit better. And uh, Pentecost sees this as an opportunity. Because they do go in to the idea that, like, it is very hard to get two people who aren't comp- who have not had some sort of bond with each other to pilot Jaegers uh, together. It's not impossible... But it's very hard to do. And uh, it's at this point as well we see the higher-ups of the Pan Pacific Corps 
which is uh, Pentecost's superior, Kaz Takata, who is the actual general that runs the entire uh, operation of defending the Pacific Rim. So he is uh, Pentecost's superior. And they're both discussing, like, Kaz does not see this working. Pentecost wants to give him a little more chance. He tells him, like, look, man, like, you, it's a valiant effort. I get it. And he's like, I have respect for both these pilots, but when, you know, when they lo- when a pilot loses their, their, uh, their partner, it's next to impossible to get him to hook up with someone else. So... Pentecost still believes them, so Kaz gives him one more chance to figure it out. If not, he's just going to send them both home. So what does Pentecost do? Well, he gets the two of them to do the waltz. And they're both kind of against it at first, but he explains, he's like, look, you guys have been fighting. You guys need to dance. You need to be in sync with each other. And so we have this actually very lovely moment of the two of them learning to dance with each other. And this is, there's... A new aspect of the drift that is brought, that is in this script that was not in the final film, which is ghost drifting. Where if you've been connected with someone inside the drift or piloting, uh, in rare cases, you kind of have a sort of psychic connection. It's not quite, you can read each other's minds. But it kind of is. It's very, it's very hard to describe. It's not, it's not full on telekinesis. But your minds kind of start melding to one. You, the, the, um, the memories uh, get absorbed into the other person. Abilities get absorbed. Stuff like that. And this is actually something that the animated series, for as much as that one kind of crapped the bed, did play on. Like they did play deeper into what the drift technology can really do and what you can do with it. And so, uh, this is where the script starts wildly deviating from the final movie. And I, this, it's some, this is a change that I'm actually kind of glad Guillermo made because, well, we get Mako and Raleigh starting to get closer to each other. And by closer, I mean romantically. Like, they find themselves dancing and seeing each other through each other's eyes. And to a point where it gets a little, uh, gets a little blue, and we find out that this is actually a cutaway from a dream. They actually did do the waltz, but they had a dream where they were kind of waltzing naked and they got a little, uh, you know, a little randy with each other. And they start syncing up. They start figuring out like, hey, maybe we like each other. Maybe we can make this work. And we go, f- and from there. We go back to Australia. So Flit, Flick and Newt, Flick and Newt, sorry, end up in the Australian outback. So the time frame of this movie is over the course of clearly a couple of weeks to almost like a month, and uh, at least at least like three weeks. Three weeks have gone over this, and Newt and uh, Flick are out in the Australian outback. Flick has been getting weird nightmares too. Nightmares of Yancey. Like she has a nightmare in the sequence where her and Yancey are on a uh, Ferris wheel uh, on the Santa Monica Pier and they're having a conversation with each other. And remind you, they were together before he died. They were clearly romantically involved. And uh, the kaiju that takes uh, Yancey's life, Tortuga, this giant 
uh, tri-beaked uh, turtle monster. Uh, very much reminds me of Jinmen from uh, Devilman, the way he was described. Uh, shows up, and the world is set aflame around them, and Flick doesn't understand what's going on, and then Yancey disappears, and we find out it's a, it's a horrible dream that she was having. And Flick uh, tells me, he's like, yeah, don't worry about it. It's just been, I've been having bad dreams lately. And this comes to play in uh, in, a, in a moment. So you find out that uh, they've, they've arrived. So they've made it to the compound of Dr. Ivo. And uh, they meet the good doctor himself. And before we go into anything else, we get to, we cut back to Raleigh Amako who are put on their first mission, and that is to protect the city of Busan from a kaiju named uh, NVIDIA. NVIDIA is, at first, this is the one, this one, there's a homage to any Toho monsters, it's this one. NVIDIA is shown to be seen as this gigantic crustacean-esque insect-looking thing that the Korean Jaeger, which is not named, uh, does take out initially. Like, it ends up killing, you know, he ends up killing it, but uh, in its death blow, it lets out an EMP pulse, not unlike uh, the, um, oh, what was his name? Um, Leatherback. So, as it lets out an EMP pulse, its shell cracks open, and this large, and this smaller, but more agile, winged praying mantis style kaiju comes out. So, you can clearly see where they took the idea of Otachi from this kaiju. And now, with the EMP, everything is out. The, kai the Jaeger is inoperable, the city is in, uh, blacked out, and now the kaiju isn't dead, and it's far more aggressive and agile. So Raleigh and Mako are sent to deal with it. So they are um, they gear up in Gypsy Danger, who we are told in this one is a Mark One. It is one of the original... Jaegers, and even to Raleigh, Raleigh even says at one point, I'm shocked you still have this thing operating. Uh, but it is much like the, in the final movie, it's implied that, hey, um, supplies are getting limited. And as they're gearing up, uh, this is where we meet Tendo for the first time, uh, who does not play anywhere near as big of a role, but he is still the mechanic of the Jaegers. He's the guy who runs uh, maintaining, maintaining all the Jaegers. And uh, gives them a pill to take before they hop in. And Raleigh's like, why? He's like, these things are walking nuclear reactors. So we have to protect you from radiation poisoning. Uh, which doesn't make Raleigh or Mako any easier in their first, their, their first run together. But they're confident. And so they're sent to Busan. Now, the big difference in this one versus uh, the final film is that uh, there is a full transport system for the for the Jaegers. They can get to places pretty quick. Um, kind of like uh, they, they're... So, in the final film, they have the helicopters. Helicopters to either them. And this one, they call them jump hawks, which are these uh, much more like Harrier jet-looking like aircraft that have the capability, like four of them, uh, strap uh, wires to the Jaeger pick them up, and they can move incredibly fast to any location. So they get to Busan from Tokyo in under about 30 minutes. And the Jump Hawks stay with the Jaegers at all times. 
as uh, backup support and uh, to be the eye in the sky, if you will. So, uh, Gypsy Danger fights NVIDIA, who has... Um, who can flap her wings and cause a sort? She can't fly, but she can cause a um, like a like a uh, audible like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of like an audible di- kind of it's like a it's a vibration attack. It's the best way I can describe it. Um, that throws off uh, Gypsy's uh, tracking system. So and. Gypsy is much slower, much bulkier than, say, Tactic Ronin or the other Jaegers that are put that are uh, in this movie because she's the original. So she's built like a tank, where the other ones are actually built more like the Jaegers from Pacific Rim Uprising. Much more agile, quicker, more humanoid. So they they fight. Uh, Gypsy ends up tearing off one of the wings. They find that regular. Uh, Attacks don't work, which uh, Mako says, well, we don't need that because the best thing about these old Jaegers is they got melee weapons. And this is where we're introduced to the chainsword for the first time, which they use to bifurcate NVIDIA in half. And after that, they power down, they celebrate, and they head back to Tokyo where um, in their celebration, they consummate their their budgeting romance and stacker is completely 100% on board with this because as he says whatever you guys need to do you do so we go back to australia and we get to we get more of flick newt and dr ivo and ivo is pretty much kind of giving newt the you know hey you know there's Clearly stuff we don't, you know, you guys, you guys don't know about. Goes full in on what the precursors are. And gives the whole backstory. He tells them the precursors are essentially the gods of this universe. Their world is dying. They live in an alternate reality from ours. A, a, a pocket uh, dimension, if you will. And they created ours to escape to because their universe is dying of a heat death. There's no stars left. The one they have left is a dull red giant, and they are desperately trying to wipe, as, as he calls it, the rats off the lifeboat, which is us. Because uh, as it goes deeper, it's like they created this universe, time in their dimension moves much different than ours. So for a hundred years here, a day can go by in theirs. And so when they created this universe, it was the idea that, like, hey, sometimes, you know, Things will pop up. It's that's you know, it's not an exact science, and this is the planet they have chosen because it's the most uh, hospitable hospitable planet for them, and uh, they need to get here before their existence is wiped out when their universe just collapses on itself. And so they've been sending kaiju's over from their dimension to get rid of us. And the dip problem is is that the rift is not fully formed. It is in a constant state of flux. Hence why only one kaiju can come through at a time. So for them, they have only been at this for maybe a couple of years. And for us, you know, it's been, you know, a lot longer. It's been like a couple of decades, or like two decades at this point. And every attempt at getting the rift to close has been impossible because of its constant nature of being in flux. It's not, it's not hardened. And as uh, 
Newt does not buy into any of this. He's like, aliens? Like, are you are you kidding me? Pock dimensions? And as I would even say, he's like, what do you think? Like, you can't, you can buy into giant monsters coming out of the Pacific Ocean, but you can't buy into the idea that there is a creative, either there, there's, there's a mind behind it. And Newt kind of just like, he's like, I, like, he's like, look, man, I'm applied sciences. Like, I, I can only believe what I see in front of me. And Ivo tells me, he's like, hey, man, you do you. Flick, though, wants to know more. And she's, she's asking, well, how do you know all this stuff? And as he points out, I, I was the head of the early days of the Pan Pacific Corp. Like, uh, my research is what created everything you see around you. And he tells her, he's like, they all know. Everybody at the top brass all know. He's like, this isn't, this isn't a random thing. We're at war, and they don't want to tell the rest of the world we're at war because this is a war we're not going to win. And he's kind of resigned himself to accepting his fate. And Flick, again, Flick, much like Newt, doesn't want to you know, believe this. So he's like, well, look, I can show you. So they go down deeper into his uh, in, in his compound where he has a kaiju brain in a vat, much like uh, the kaiju brain that uh, that Newt has in the in the main movie. And so, while this is going on, Newt rummages around Ivo's uh, storage uh, bins and he finds a pair of glasses that are essentially and they're like kind of not so quite future tech but it's you know it's the future tech the pacific rim has built and wearing them uh has all the files that uh, ivo had on the rift and it appears to him as a 3d structure that he can interact with and as he's fiddling around with it you know he's you know poking and stuff like that and the rift bounces and moves but there's one point he hits that it falls apart and he can't figure out what he just did because he hits something. And so he re, he pulls the simulation back up and goes over and over again, but can't find the spot. Meanwhile, Ivo is with Flick, and he's like, so you really want to see? And she's like, yes, I need to know what's going on. So he's like, look, I can show you. And she's like, well, how? He's like, you you know how the drift system works? She's like, yeah, two pilots, you know, connect. And he's like, well, you can do it with a kaiju brain. And so the way that... Uh, he initiates the, the drift with her because in this movie it's not a headpiece that you wear that with diodes around it that gets you to drift. It's actually a wet port that they implant in all the pilots. So there's like a little giant mnemonic like jack in the back of their neck that goes to their brain stem. And so as she mentions, I don't have a wet port. He said, well, then we got to do it the old-fashioned way, which is inserting a two-inch needle into the base of her into the base of her brain. So he straps her down, inserts the needle, hooks her up to the kaiju brain, and she drifts with the kaiju brain. So this is where we actually see the world of the precursors. And we see it in actually much more detail than we actually see it in uh, the final movie. We see the world that they live in. It is a dead world. It's dark except for the one dying sun. It's a hospitable world, and the way that the script describes it, it, she's like floating over it, and she notices the planet that she's over, which is very rocky, uh, very inhospitable. There's something moving uh, on the ground, and as she gets closer, it's the holding pin 
of all the kaijus, which is an idea taken from uh, Voltron, because they used to have the Robeast holding pin. And this is where the these are the native beasts of this world that the precursors are using. And then she actually gets to see the precursors themselves and their operations and what they're doing. And she sees the technology that they wield and just how hell-bent they are on wiping us all out for their own survival. While this is going on, uh, Ivo finds Newt tinkering with his glasses, you know, catches him. Newt's like, look, I, I found a way. He's like, no, you didn't. He's like, yeah, I did. I found a way to collapse the rift. He's like, no, it was random. Believe me, we've all tried. I've tried for, you know, years. It's it's not stable. You can't break it down when it's unstable. He's like, no, no, I think that's the problem. I think it's stabilizing. And that's why we're seeing more and more kaiju come through. And that's when Ivo says, yes, it actually is. I've known this for a long time. Everyone at the Pan Pacific uh, Defense Court knows this. And that's the problem. You can't close it. And soon, you're, we're going to be overrun by kaiju. And soon, the precursors will come. And they will wipe us off the face of the planet. And he punches out Newt. And then he goes over to a corner and opens this giant crate, which has a bullet that's used for... Uh, for one of the Jaegers. It's gigantic. It's a giant munition. Sets a clock, and he's like, look, man, I'm doing you a favor. We're all dead. Let's uh, let's go out early so we don't have to suffer when uh, the gods come. And Newt does not take this lightly. So a struggle between Ivo and Newt ensues. And uh, Newt punches out Ivo, takes off, goes to find Flick as this counter is uh, going down. He's got three minutes. Finds Newt hooked up. Doesn't realize what you know what she just did. Gets her out of there. She's convulsing. Gets her to uh, his jeep outside, and starts booking it because he knows he's got a minute of that to get out of the way of this explosion. So he's booking it through the Australian outback at night. Can't see anything except for the road ahead of him, and he's going as fast as he humanly can as Newt is having a seizure in front of him. Or, I'm sorry, Flick is having a seizure in front of him, not Newt. His names are whacking all over the place, guys. So, bomb goes off. Destroys everything. Flips the car over. Newt and uh, Flick survive. Uh, Flick goes into cardiac arrest. Newt manages to perform CPR on her and gets her back. But she's had a mental break of sorts. And he tells her, like, why? Why did you do it? She's like, I asked to do it. I... It was my choice. I didn't. I didn't want anyone else to do it. So it's like, all right. So now what? She's like, we're doomed. And he said, no, no, we're not. I think I. I think I can stop this. Which cuts us back to Tokyo. And Raleigh and Newt are, or not Raleigh. Raleigh and Mako are now full-fledged Jaeger pilots once again. And uh, as everyone's celebrating, another attack happens. And now we're within five days of like the last attack, so they're getting faster. And uh, Tactic Ronin now is sent out to defend Tokyo from this new kaiju named Komodo, who is a gigantic lizard. Basically like a big kimono lizard, very, but with a lot of scale, like hardened armored scales on him. 
And this one is much bigger. He's a Category 4. And Tactic Ronin is one of the only uh, Jaegers to actually fully defeat a Category 4. So Stacker and everybody there, they're not too worried because Tactic Ronin is a Mark II. It's faster. It doesn't carry half of the uh, artillery that uh, Gypsy Danger does, but it's got a lot of other cooler gadgets and it can move a lot faster. So everybody complaining about how fast the Jaegers were in Pacific Rim 2, this was originally the original idea. Like, they would move like super robots, um, especially as they increased and as the technology improved and they got better at building these things. So Tactic Ronin uh, goes up to face uh, Komodo in Tokyo Bay. Fight ensues. So there's a point where Komodo stands upright on its... Uh, it's got six legs, so it stands upright on... It's four back legs, and it dwarfs Tactic Ronin. It's clearly bigger. And Tactic Ronin takes it down by doing a roundhouse kick, uh, and its two blades on its arms heat up as, uh, as like, these heat blades. And it slices through it, takes it out, bifurcates it. Everyone's like, all right, cool. That was a uh, good job, guys. Head back. Before they can head back, they're attacked by another kaiju. This is the first double attack that's ever happened and this is the kaiju fulcrum which is the first category 5 kaiju since trespasser showed up uh, all those years prior and fulcrum is even bigger than komodo and he's described as this gigantic mixture of a dinosaur and a squid he's very cthulian if you will he's got the head of a squid but with like a the tentacles rile up it's got this giant uh, beakish maw underneath it, but it's it's almost humanoidish in the way it stands. Like it's big, it's bulky, and it's got two arms that have these these uh, kind of uh, proboscises on it that shoot globs. And these globs are called berserkers because as they hit the air, they form, and they're these little crustacean-looking crab things that the second they hit something, they crawl up, latch onto it like a tick, and then they bloat and explode. So, Fulcrum just wails on Tactic Ronin. Now, the thing is, they explain in the script is that the Kai, the Jaegers pretty much have power enough to stop one kaiju at a time, and they got to keep the fight under about eight minutes or so because otherwise they start draining their their battery power. It's very Evangelion-ish. Like there's there's rules and there's limitations to what these things can do. So. Their uh, power is is at you know pretty much almost spent. They don't have um, they they've used up a lot of their resources and Fulcrum just starts wailing on them to the point that uh, our pilots Kari and Duck think that this is the end that they're going out until they are saved by Gypsy Danger who shows up to take on Fulcrum and it, it, another great fight ensues between these two, where even Gypsy's having a hard time with this thing. But the one thing they do manage to do is, at one point, Gypsy grabs Fulcrum's arm and squashes the proboscis that's shooting the berserkers out um, and causes it to explode onto itself. And as the insides of that fall to the ground, you see these half-formed berserkers just fall into like a gloop of like acidic me uh, mess onto the streets. Now, while this is going on, while Gypsy's handling Fulcrum, this is something that I really wish they had kept in 
the final movie because this is a great detail that uh, of how operations of the Pan Pacific Court work. So as tactics down, uh, the Jump Hawks roll in and they send out mechanics, literal men, mechanics that come down and start doing repairs right there on the battleground to the uh, to the Jaeger. And while this is going on, Fulcrum had, before Gypsy had crushed uh, its uh, proboscis, it was shooting berserkers at the at the workers who don't blink. Like, they're all trained. Like, you get the job done no matter the cost. Don't run. You don't do anything. You sit there. You make sure that that Jaeger's working. And we actually get to see the Jump Hawks in action for a minute because they start coming down, strifing all of the... Uh, the berserkers away from the workers so it is a nice symbiotic relationship that the that the crew has outside of the uh the jaeger crew it's it's a nice little touch that i kind of wish they kept so uh tactic gets into operations but she's still pretty much like there it's just a patch job and uh the two of them take on fulcrum with raleigh telling uh uh, duck, like, the only way we can do this is, like, you gotta vent the coolant. And so, uh, Tactic Ronin vents its coolant onto, uh, Fulcrum, to which, uh, Gypsy Danger just smashes it completely into, into pieces. Uh, and that ends the first double kaiju attack on, uh, pretty much any soil at this point. So, as the two teams, uh, get out of their Jaegers, and embrace, and like, man, you know, that was close. Yeah, we made it. Uh, Newt and Duck, or Newt, Newt and Flick, sorry, arrive in Tokyo, and uh, Flick sees Raleigh standing there with Mako, and uh, he goes to talk to her, and she tells him, like, hey, I have someone here who can help. And, you know, there's a perfect setup for, is it Batman? No, it's not Batman. Good Simpsons joke. So they take Newt to the Pan Pacific Corps, who tells them about the 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 rift. And of course, General Takata is like, We look, we know. We know about all this. He's like, Well, here's the thing. I can destroy it. And they're like, We've tried. He's like, No, no, no. What you don't understand is that when you guys were monitoring it, it was in its infancy. This thing is not done forming it. And that's the key. Once it stabilizes, then it it's vulnerable. And they're like, Well, how do you mean? And the way he describes it is like, look, think of it this way. You can't break water. But you can break ice. And that's kind of what's going on here. It's a simplified method of describing what's going on. He's like, what we need to do as this thing starts to stabilize is send a large explosion down to the to the bottleneck point of it. And that explosion should break apart the rift and close off the, the space between our two dimensions. Which Takata says... Are you sure this is going to reach? Like, yeah, but we just need something big enough. And they all kind of stand around and realizing there's no more nuclear material left in the world. We mined it all for powering those first generation Jaegers. Like, it's all gone. There's nothing left. We can make a explosion big enough to do it. Which Raleigh steps and he's like, well, we still have Gypsy, and Gypsy's completely nuclear. So the plan is to retrofit Gypsy into being. A nuclear bomb. So something they did carry, kind of something they carried over. So the plan is set. Raleigh and Mako realize they need to be dropped down into this uh, 
into the rift, which is five miles down in the Pacific Ocean, and go through the rift and detonate Gypsy at the exact moment and try to escape it. It's essentially a suicide mission. Mako and Raleigh, by this point, can now communicate with each other because it's one of the effects of drifting together and, and syncing up. Raleigh can completely understand Mako, and Mako can completely understand Raleigh, but anybody else that talks to them, like, Mako still only understands Japanese, Raleigh still only understands uh, English, and Duck tries to, you know, play with this a little bit, and he speaks to Japanese, to to Mako, and then says something to Raleigh in English, and then turns to her, he's like, did you understand that? And she's like, nope. But that's the effects of the ghost drifting uh, in the in this. So now they're completely bonded as kind of one person now. So they they both realize, hey, you know, this could be it for both of us. We just met all this, you know, all, all the the cliche um, Hollywood romance stuff that you get. But they both realize, hey, we have to do this. This could end this all. We could, you know, live a normal life afterwards. And they both have come to the realization, like, you know, we're not responsible for our loved ones' deaths. They were they were what they were. There are things in life you cannot control. And honestly, like, this is something we can't control. So they, they both agree to it. And one of the aspects of their escape, they tell Tendo, it's like, you need to switch the eject buttons. So they will determine who gets ejected. And this was a method for not for making sure that one of them doesn't play hero and stays with the Jaeger long enough that they don't make it out of the of the explosion. So, as they gear up, uh, there is a gigantic surge from the rift, and dozens of kaiju start coming out. So we get this wonderful montage sequence of all of the different Jaegers on the Pacific Rim gearing up. We see California, we see Lima, we see Korea, China, Australia. They're all all their Jaegers are powering up, standing at the at their respective beachfronts, waiting for this army of kaiju coming their way because now the rift is stabilizing and uh, the precursors kinda know that you know we're coming for them. So as Raleigh and Mako are in gypsy danger being trekked out over the Pacific Ocean. There's a point where they're like, you know, 20 minutes away and they're attacked by a kaiju who leaps out of the ocean trying to snap at them and misses them. So they realize, okay, this is, it's getting real now. So they are dropped into the spot where the rift is. They drop five miles down to the bottom of the ocean, to the rift, where they are met with a barrage of unnamed kaiju. And they end up fighting the kaiju. They, much like the movie, they tackle one into the rift. While this is going on, we cut to Japan, where Tatagronin, now completely repaired, is standing guard over uh, Osaka. And they now have to take on three kaiju. And so we cut back and forth between Raleigh and Mako at the bottom of the ocean going into the rift and... Tokyo er, and Osaka. So there's two different fights going on as we cut as as this whole situation plays out. And the three kaiju that Tactic Ronin have to you know, face are called Tingu, Pharaoh, and Scunner. Tingu is described as a uh, having a bat body with a hydra head, so it's got multiple like snake-like heads on a bat body. 
pharaoh is like a mixture of like a beetle and a bull. So kind of like a um, like Minotaurian-ish. And then there's Scunner. So we got a version of Scunner in the final movie, but this Scunner is the most unique, uniquely described kaiju in the entire script. And he is described as very human-like with almost like a skull-like face. A bloated and distorted human body with like beige skin. Essentially, he was kind of describing a Titan from Attack on Titan. And so Tactic Ronin starts doing battle with all three of these these monsters. Um, so the battle ensues. Manages to take they take out Pharaoh for or they, yeah they take out Pharaoh first. They're left to deal with Tengu and Scunner at the same time. With Scunner being the one giving them the most problems. So, as uh, Gypsy is falling into the rift, they're being just bombarded by kaiju who are jumping onto Gypsy Danger as, and they're trying to tear this thing apart as it's coming through the rift. And Mako and Raleigh are just hanging on there, like we get just keep going, just keep ignore them, throw them off, spin, do whatever you can as they approach the bottleneck. Meanwhile, Tactic Ronin is getting its ass handed to it by both. Uh, by both uh, Scunner and uh, Tengu. Thank you. Sorry, there's so many names I'm trying to keep track of here. Uh, it does, so they, uh, Tactic Ronin has this one little trick it does where it fires Riot Foam at Scunner and almost shackles its hands in this concrete forming foam that holds it off for a minute, but they have to deal with Tengu. So they do the trick of, uh, of venting their coolant onto Tengu, freezing it, when uh, uh, Scunner breaks free and starts using the blocks of, of riot foam that are now hard on its fist as weapons against um, Tactic Ronin, and they are getting worked. Like uh, the agility and strength and size of, of Scunner is almost too much for Tactic Ronin. So we cut back to the rift. They get to the bottleneck point. Uh, both of them, both. Raleigh and Mako hit the kill switch. They both eject and they take off. And there, you see their pods bolt out past uh, a dozen kaiju. They're swarming over it as an explosion goes off. We don't see if they make it out. Meanwhile, Tactic Ronin manages to uh, use its heat blade one last time and form it into like a like a focused laser and fire one shot off into Scunner's head cutting it in half, and Scunner goes into Tango, destroying both kaiju. So, Tactic Ronin lives to fight another day, and we and uh, we are waiting at the headquarters to see if there's any signs of the pods. And this is where the movie, and this is where the script ends, much like the movie. First pod comes up, it's Raleigh. And he's brought on board to a battleship, and they're waiting to see the second pod comes up. We're all waiting with bated breath. The second pod pops up. Raleigh jumps in the water, races towards it, opens it up, finds Mako in there. She's alive. They're okay. They embrace, and the world celebrates as the confirmation that the rift has been closed and the kaiju threat, for now, is no more. And that is the original script for Pacific Rim. So it's, as you can see, there's a lot of the elements that they kept over in the final version, but... You can also feel, watching the movie version, that Guillermo came in and gave a lot 
of his personal touches to this. It's almost um, comparable to what he did with Hellboy. So one of the bigger aspects of the change is the fact that the world isn't aware that there's aliens that are sending these these kaiju out. And in the in the script, yeah, in the script they're not aware. In the movie, they're, everyone's pretty pretty aware. To the point there's cults built around it. None of that is in the script. It's more technical, reads more like a anime than anything else. There's a lot of anime tropes in this. And so we have Raleigh in this one, but he's not Raleigh Beckett, he's Raleigh Ansop. That is his um, that is his full name. Uh, Mako is already a pilot, as we've discussed, and uh, you know, she's not romantically involved with anyone, but her co pilot was her best friend. Pentecost, as we saw, he's still, he's described essentially, like, it felt like when Beecham was writing this, he was writing it for Idris Elba. Like, it still reads like it's Idris Elba, like, commanding it. But in the script, though, Pentecost isn't as much of a hard-ass as he is in the in the main one. That char- that quality goes to uh, General Tanaka, who is the full-on hard-ass. Like, he, he's the take no shit kind of like play everything by the book like this is we're at war this isn't you know playtime uh newt obviously has been split into two different characters into the film which is newt and uh, gilbley and then tendo who has a much bigger role in the movie pretty much plays he's a he's a, a very minor character in this he's still the um the main the the main mechanic tech guy uh, of the Pan Pacific Corp, but uh, that's about his entire role. Like he's he's only seen in two pages, and he has maybe eight lines of dialogue, ten lines of dialogue at that. But the big changes are we have new characters. Like I said, we have Kauri and Duck, who are who have been who clearly were taken out for uh, the Hanson uh, duo, which uh, was uh, Hercules and his son. And that the relationship between these two characters were changed from you know being you know buddy buddies to uh, being rivals of uh, Raleigh and uh, Mako. Uh, one of the bigger changes is that Raleigh and his brother don't pilot Gypsy Danger; they pilot Coyote Tango, and that is the mech that that's the Jaeger that they're in when they fight Tortuga in, uh, off Santa Monica, that ultimately uh, leads to Yancey's death and what Raleigh is going through at the beginning of the movie and is trying to work his way through um, in this. So when he's sent to pilot Gypsy Danger, Gypsy Danger is already a uh, Jaeger of lore at that point. Like, he even says at some point, he's like, this should be in a museum. Like, this, like, why, you know, why are you having me pilot this? And, you know, Stacker says, like, ah, she's got a few fights left in her. Like, don't, uh, don't count her out just yet. She's still a powerful war machine. Um, the new of uh, the other new characters, Flick, who is the reporter slash love interest, and her and Newt eventually kind of form a romantic bond. It's uh, played up, and and by the way, the script does play out over a few weeks. So from our perspective, it's you know 25 minutes, but the characters perspective, it's a few weeks, so it does feel a little more natural that they develop a bond with each other, especially through this adventure they're going through. But uh, she's completely omitted from 
the final version. And I think for the best. Uh, because when they moved Newt from being just a like uh, an engineer into being the guy that's the kaiju expert uh, in the uh, in the main film, she really had no point of being in this movie anymore. And especially now we're focusing less on Raleigh and Mako as a love interest, and it's just as working as a team. Uh, yeah, she served no point. Neither did Ivo and General Takata. Like these were characters that were completely removed because. There, I was there to give information we don't know yet. Takata is the head of the Pampas, of course, so he got merged with Stacker. So his personality got merged with Stacker, so becomes the de facto hard ass. And uh, it's in the script that um, it's not Stacker that gives the famous canceling the apocalypse uh, speech. It's actually uh, Takata who's talking to the press and finally admits, like, we're at war. This is, you know, an invasion, and we're going to stop it. Like, he's letting the world know. Like, if this doesn't work, be ready, because, you know, the end might come. But he said, but he tells the press, like, no, today we're canceling the apocalypse. It is nowhere near as dramatic as Idris Elba's delivery. Like, the, the, the entire speech is completely changed, and for the better, honestly. The, the speech you can say is kind of hokey, but you know what? God damn it, it works. And I love that speech so damn much. And Idris Elba delivering it, he delivers it with some uh, bravado and, 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 and just pure manliness. Um, so those are our characters that did not make it over. Guillermo obviously added, you know, one of his changes was splitting Newt into the two characters, making Stacker the full focus, really developing the father-daughter relationship of Mako and uh, Stacker. Stacker being the one that piloted Coyote Tango and saved Mako. That was changed. Uh, K-Day being, instead of in Japan, uh, in that happened in San Francisco. One of the big changes. Uh, one of the things is that, you know, the original movie, none of it takes place in Japan. There's no, there's no Japan in that. It's either in Hong Kong or around Hong Kong. It's mostly in China. For tax reasons, you know, obviously. Excuse me. Um, and there's, I mean, there's stuff here. So the thing that I like most about this script, it's the detailing. It's it's going into the more of the techno babble stuff. There's aspects here, like the way that the jump hawks uh, work with the Jaegers, that they are they can be used as their eye in the sky. So the jump hawks have. Um, they have cameras on there, so the Jaeger can't see from its perspective. They can switch over to a view from one of the jump hawks, so they can see uh, from above what's going on around them to, to hone in on the kaiju. Um, the fact that there's no kaiju mess left, they do dis they do address that in the script. Since the jump hawks are able to lift the Jaegers to their location, they are easily able to lift the kaiju corpses away, and they take them to an off-site place to be disposed of. And essentially, they're cut down, used for you know, used for research and study. There's no uh, worry about kaiju blood; it, it being completely um, uh, poisonous to people. That's not brought up in it. It's just the kaiju are treated as almost natural disasters that are biological. And they all the one of the nice things is that they do lean into 
them being more individual. Like the kaiju's aren't engineered like they are in the in the movie. They are the natural like megafauna that live on this world that the precursors live on. So they essentially just send them through as they can as their as the rift starts stabilizing. Which I like that idea a lot better. I like the idea that they weren't building like because once you establish the idea that hey these things are all genetically engineered why not make them all you know at the category five like the biggest most powerful you can i'm pretty sure they could find some explanation for it but the idea that they're picking the animals that are wandering around their planet which it gives it a little more nuance to it that yes they're not all going to be um you know, heavy hitters. Some of them are smaller. Some of them are more agile. You know, easier for the Jaegers to pick off. And some are going to be a little harder. And the idea that, yes, you can't send all the big ones through the rift because it is not stabilized yet. So it's a little harder. That that gives a little more credence to that. But I do like... I do prefer the idea that they're not bioweapons. They're just natural animals of this world. And these aliens are using them as their as their weapons that's but that's just me that's some you know and not only that but the the way travis describes them in the script versus what we got where they all have kind of a uniformity to in some extent they all have the bioluminescence going through them um there's a look and texture to all of them again i love the first movie and i love the the jaeger designs on all of them because i love because that's I'll say this, an improvement from the script to the screen. Because the way Travis describes the Jaegers and these, they're all decked out in camouflage, like um, of, of standard army camouflage. And they're much more mechanical. Like, they're not as fantastical as the final versions are. Uh, where the Kaiju, on the other hand, this seemed like this was Travis's kind of, like, this was his area of expertise. And he goes deep diving and describing the uh the the kaiju that come in uh tortuga he describes as a gigantic turtle-like monster with huge uh giant hands with claws it has uh it's when it opens its mouth it's at three points kind of like shin godzilla like how the jaw opens in in three places in the bottom and it shoots out a um a projectile tongue with like a spear on it and its back its carapace is just this gigantic row of hardened spikes that form a shell over it. Very much clearly he's homaging Gamera and it feels like there's a little bit of Jimin from Devilman in there. Uh, Trespasser is described very differently. He's pretty much described as a giant dinosaurian monster that its roar, when it roars, the roar creates a sonic wave and just destroys every window and levels cars and stuff around it. And it's massive. It's huge. It's it was it's bigger than any of the kaiju up to that point that that, that the world has faced. And then there's Dengue, the first real kaiju we see attack in the script, which is a pretty much a spider crab, or it's a reptilian spider crab of, of sorts with like tiger like striping on it. Uh, in a very cool scene. And by the way, sequence completely in daylight too. Like, there's a few daylight sequences. Like, the final battle happens, like, during the day as well. Uh, we have Slattern, who is the first um, kaiju we see in the 
uh, the, the simulation described as like a like a giant T-Rex with no arms that's very slick. Almost like a snake with legs, if you will, with like a T-Rex head. Um, and uh, moves kind of like a, a skull crawler, if you will. And there's NVIDIA, which has the uh, two forms. It has the what you would call the pupa form or the crustacean form, which is just... It's very Mothra-ish with a big shell over it. And then once it's defeated in its first form sends out an EMP pulse, and then blooms into like a giant reptilian praying mantis-looking creature out of its shell, with wings kind of like Megagirus that create like sonic vibrations that makes it impossible for the uh, Jaegers to um, to hone in on. Uh, then there's Komodo, who's uh, pretty much a six-legged kind of Komodo monster, like Komodo dragon-like monster. They can rear up on its back hind legs and use its front legs as kind of like hands. It's got clawish hands and it spits acid too. It has an attack that spit, spits acid um, that uh, doesn't do too much damage to the Jaeger but it does anything that it touches it just like, it's described in the script like it hits a car and just melts it and just starts eating through the concrete below it. And of course the aforementioned Fulcrum which is the first Cat 5 uh, kaiju that any of the Jaegers face in this, which also described as a giant Cthulhu-looking beast. Matt towers over both Gypsy and and Tantic Ronin. Like, if they were to stand side by side, it, it's actually about as big as the Mega Kaiju is in comparison to the Jaegers in Uprising. Like, it's huge. And it has the proboscises on its arms that shoot the little uh, parasite uh, bombs. Um, squid, you know, it's got tentacles wrapped around its head, kind of like Davy Jones and uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, that it uses as uh, to like pull in Tactic Ronin and Gypsy Danger when it's trying to like bite like the hull off of it. Um, with a giant like, pur- it's got a purplish body. Very, uh, it's a very cool, unique design. And then the last three, which were Tengu, Pharaoh, and Scunner. Tengu being the bat. Uh, the bat body with the hydra head again another another crazy a crazy look that I, I was kind of into pharaoh which is a beetle on a bull's body it's got a beetle head and kind of like, very minotaurianish then scunner scunner was the one when especially when i first read this years ago that's the one that stood out to me because it felt like um when i originally read the description it was like man like it feels like beecham is taking cues from toho's frankenstein and turning it into his own kaiju, which does play up. And it, it, it turns, you know, in the script, Scunner gives Tactic Ronin the most problems, like, in terms of their battle. Because it's much more agile. It's humanoid in shape. It can it can actually take on Tactic Ronin, like, in a way that none of the other kaijus really could. And then we get a few unnamed kaiju that aren't really described as... Um, Gypsy enters the rift. There's a bunch of them. They just, as the script just says, there's kaiju coming around. No description given of those. They're just unnamed kaiju. So, now for the Jaegers. There's only really four Jaegers we see in this movie. Uh, There's Gypsy Danger, uh, which is, in this movie, one of the first Mark ones. So, the film swapped Gypsy and Tactic, where Tactic is one of the first Mark ones. That you know, we find out that Stacker piloted. Uh, in the script, it's never mentioned if Stacker 
was a pilot. It's insinuated he kind of was at one point in the early days. Um, and then you have Tatic Ronin, um, who does show up in the final in the final film, but only has a you know that brief appearance in the opening montage. But here is the it is what uh, Striker Eureka became. Like it is the it's the 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 buddy Jaeger. It's the 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 co it's the the, the partner Jaeger. Um, similar in design, uh, but much more lean. It actually has a lot more in common with the um, with the uh, uprising uh, Jaegers in uh, look and how and how they play out. Then there's Coyote Tango, which uh, isn't really described as much. It's we're given a brief description. It does have uh, military fatigues painted over it. It is much heavier. It's got ar- shoulder cannons, kind of like the original, like the final version does. And this is the uh, the California-based Jaeger that Raleigh and his brother Yancey pilot. And they actually have a, a, a... It's implied in the script. They actually had a pretty good career. They had a few kills under their belts. And, you know, they got... They were kind of cocky guys. Um, that uh, only because they were bickering inside of the drift with each other when Raleigh finds out... Uh, or when Yancey finds out Raleigh has the hots for... Um, uh, flick and like he was like he wanted to ask her out and Yancey got to her first and they kind of kept it a secret from Raleigh for a bit um, that leads them to have that moment where there's that moment of hesitation and when they're fighting Tortuga the Tortuga spear goes through Coyote Tango and takes out um, Yancey's pod and the one of the big differences in the script versus the final screen, and this is definitely Guillermo. Uh, the con pods that they're in are separate. They're in they're in two different sides. So they're in these tiny little pods, and they're not standing. They're actually piloting them, kind of like a Gundam pilot. They're still strapped in. They're still plugged into it, uh, as as mentioned in you know in the rundown. They're plugged into a wet port behind their head. So. It's not in the suit itself. It's that there's a cable that goes in to initiate the drift system so that they can control the Jaeger. Um, technically, it kind of makes a little more sense, but Guillermo, obviously Guillermo added the... No, they're standing there together. One acts as the right hemisphere, one acts as the left hemisphere, and they both fight in tandem. I kind of do prefer Guillermo's version where they are literally acting out the fights inside the Jaeger head. It gives it a much better dynamic than just being inside a pilot, kind of like a Gundam, and you're moving a joystick here and there and some but some holographic buttons that aren't really there unless they're wearing the uh, the suit. And then finally there's Puma Real, which is the Jaeger that uh, defends Lima and fights uh, uh, Dengue. Um, also Described similar to Tatarone Giant, uh, but much sleeker, faster, a uh, little a little leaner, but a very heavy uh, artillery style uh, Jaeger. Um, and the technology is a little more expanded upon. Like I said, the there's the aspect of the drift that technology they go into. They they have the thing they call Ghost Drift, which is uh, pilots can start almost communicating with each other like they're once you're inside someone else's head they kind of get into you too and it's sharing these 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 aspects and this is how mako 
and Raleigh's relationship really starts bonding. Once they start drifting more and more, they start experiencing ghost drifts where in their dreams they are communicating with each other. And this is where how they help build the romance. Again, not a big fan of it. I get where they're going with it, but going back to Guillermo's changes, I much prefer Raleigh and Mako not being romantically involved and kind of just being friends. It, it's it's a better change of pace. Makes for a better dynamic. Um, also, the fact that uh, you know you can get two people who aren't together, you know, to work. Like, it, it does it does work. Um, you know, they have mentioned it. They've tried it before. It's very rare, but it does work. And then, as we saw in Pacific Rim Uprising, uh, they've figured out the technology better, so you don't actually have to have some sort of... You don't have to be related or have some sort of bond with each other. You kind of just have to work with each other. Um, the drift technology is not delved into as deep as the uh, the final version is. And again, I think that's a better improvement. Some things were taken away, but the mo- the sequel and the animated series we've gotten, they have played with those ideas. And I'm happy they have played with the tech that is because, again, when you think about it, the world got together and pushed technology almost 100 years into the future in under a decade. And we never really sit there and ponder the repercussions of what that can do to day to day, especially if people of ill repute got a hold of this. Um, that is uh, that is the one real great aspect I'll give to the animated series. They do play with those ideas. Do they play with them well? Mm, that's debatable, but at least they do play with them, and I do appreciate that. And then, finally, overall. Is this a better script? Uh, I would say in some aspects, yes. And in other aspects, no. The thing I do prefer with this script over the finished one is the finished one's a little bit tighter. Uh, Guillermo's changes, adding more to the world, building the world around it, because one of the things we really don't see is how the world responds to these to these kaijus showing up like we we rarely see the outside world rarely we don't see what how you know we very rarely see how people deal with it you know what the effects of these things attacking do and that is something Guillermo really played up and I I I think that is a much that's a better change the thing that I think is better in the script is the third act and the third act is, is still Story-wise, the same as what we got in the movie. Got to drop a Jaeger into the rift, blow up a bomb, and close it up. Where in the final version, as you know, it's Tactic Ronin. It's got the last bit of nuclear payload on it. They're going to drop, or not Tactic Ronin, Striker Eureka. They're going to drop Striker Eureka into the the rift, blow it up, and they're going to get out and go. And of course, that doesn't go to plan. And it's in Gypsy, who ends up having to sacrifice itself to destroy the rift. Where here, it's a dual plan, where uh, you have two different scenarios going on. So, as you know, in the movie, they're underwater. And the focus is completely on this mission to destroy the rift. The last kaiju fights are done underwater. 
And if I have any nitpicking with this movie whatsoever is that the fight that caps the second act of the movie, the fight in Hong Kong, couldn't, they did not at all uh, manage to top that. Especially with the third act. The third act, you're kind of supposed to, like, go big, bring everything home, and that's, you know, get the satisfied ending. But, it, to me, they kind of blew that load in the end of the second act when Gypsy is taking on both uh, Leatherback and Otachi. And then when you get to the fight underwater, you lose you lose the, the aspects that make these things seem giant. Like, yes, they're at the bottom of the ocean. There's uh, stalactites everywhere. And they're volcanic vents. And they're fighting kaiju. They're swimming around. So they're in their element. And the Jaegers are out of their element. And when they fight Scunner at the end, at the the last, you know, big Cat 5 kaiju, he doesn't seem as imposing as he would have if they fought him on land. Like, I'll say what you will about the sequel... But when they fought the Mega Kaiju, the Mega Kaiju felt imposing. It felt giant. It felt like, holy crap, how are they going to get out of this? Uh, because these Jaegers are being dwarfed by them. Where, when they fought Scunner in this, it didn't feel like the you lost the sense of scale on everything. Where the script, you have, you take that focus off of the, the fight at the bottom of the ocean, and you take it to, to, to Osaka, and you have Tactic Ronin taking on these three Category 5 Kaiju. So while Gypsy's doing its thing, fighting off Kaiju, trying to get get to the bottom of the, uh, the rift and blow it up, you have Tactic Ronin taking on these three massive Kaiju in a gigantic city battle. Now, it's implied that there's more of these battles going on around the, around the Pacific Rim, but we only focus on, on the battle in Osaka. And once that fight's over, because that fight ends right as they blow up the rift, and thematically it feels more, um, it, it, it's a better finish. It's the best way I can describe it. It, it feels it, like you get something more out of it than we did in the end. Because the very end, the very end of the movie, is uh, the script is still very much the same from the, uh, from the final film where they get out of the pods and they embrace each other and the world celebrates all that stuff, but the change of while Mako and Raleigh are possibly falling to their deaths is played against the rest of the world having one last stand against these kaiju, and what might be either, if the plan doesn't work, might be the beginning of the end, or possibly the, uh, you know, the end of this madness. And that thematically works better for me. I would say that's the better ending that they did. And I understand why they, they cut it. It's it's a matter of flow. It's a matter of, uh, especially if you have the, you know, they killed off all the other Jaeger pilots in that second, in that main battle of Hong Kong. So there's no one left. So, you, you know, you have Stacker sacrificing himself, you know, piloting Striker Eureka and... Uh, you know, you're getting that death instead. We're here, yeah, Stacker doesn't die. Stacker lives, he's at the command center with everyone else. Um, actually, none of the pilots die. All the pilots make it out alive. And I get why Guillermo changed that up, because again, you want to have some sense that 
anyone could go at any point. Otherwise, if it feels like everyone's just winning, like there's no stakes to be had. And I get it. Um, but I still would have liked something a little more out of that, that third act. That's But that's just me. Um, he also added the character of Hannibal Chow, which is a full Guillermo thing. Him, uh, his underground network of... Uh, illegal kaiju um, poachers selling all sorts of um, you know barbiturates and stuff they're made out of different uh, kaiju pieces uh, that that was a nice touch I do appreciate that that uh, that felt very Guillermo-ish and also putting Ron Perlman in anything that's that's what you want out of life so overall uh, it's a it's an interesting concept. I, I see exactly why Legendary picked it up because it is, it swings for the fences and it's got a lot of great ideas. And if you're not deep into this genre and especially into like anime, like as a Voltron fan, man, there's so many like deep cut Voltron like references in this as well. That if you're not a fan of it, like you're just going to go over your head and there's more like techno jargon and stuff like that. But that's there. There's a love of, of kaiju films. A lot of the monsters are, are loving homages to Toho monsters. There's love of mechs because they're they're believe me, it gets a little into the uh, into the gear porn, if you will, when describing, you know, how the Jaegers are built and everything that works. But overall I I'm kind of bummed that there's things that were omitted and these are just my nitpicks that uh, kind of go deeper into the minutia of the world, but in turn, Guillermo did go in another direction. Instead of focusing on the small world of the Pan Pacific Corp, he focused on the world at large and how the world is going about their lives with these gigantic monsters constantly attacking them like a hurricane or a tornado showing up. And the fact that people have kind of gone a little nutty. They start worshipping them. They, um, you know, there's now a divide between the people who are inland and who live on the Atlantic Rim who don't have to worry about any of this stuff. Uh, those are bigger positive changes, in my opinion. Uh, and the biggest positive change for me, as I said, is doing away with the romantic subplot between Mako and Raleigh and just kind of making them brothers in arms, if you will. And I, I like that a lot better. Also kind of changed... I, there's a part of me that kind of wanted them to keep Mako speaking Japanese, but I understand. Like, that probably would have been a... a I get the, the studio note on that one. They're like, come on. Like, we're going to subtitle this whole thing. Like, we're trying to make, like, a big, bombastic family movie for kids to watch. And, you know, you're going to get them to be reading subtitles the whole time. So I understand that that aspect. So... Overall, that is what could have been for Pacific Rim it had Guillermo del Toro not come in. Um, you know, whatever your opinion is is going to be your opinion, but at the end of the day, we got the film we got. I love it. I know a lot of people that love it. And you know what? I also love Uprising, and I don't care. I loved how cartoonish and bombastic that movie was and how much it leans into super robots because you know what I'm probably never getting a proper super robot movie in my life I'm never going to get a proper Mazinger Z or Get a Robo where the robots don't follow the laws of physics and they can do all the awesome things that animation can provide but 
Pacific Arum Uprising gave me the closest thing to that. And not only that, but I'm going to say this, I like the kaiju designs in the second movie more than the first movie. That is me. So, say what you will about that sequel. I personally love it. I get it being, you know, Jessica and I have even had conversations. You know, she's mad that they killed off Mako. And I get it because I believe that, uh, I've heard there's various stories. Some is that, you know, she had a dispute with the producer. Others that, you know, she was pregnant and so they had to write her out early on. It is what it is. There's still room for them to do a third movie. And God willing, you know, Guillermo del Toro said he's maybe got a few live action movies left and he wants to do. He wants to finish his career in animation. Maybe he can finally take Pacific Rim and get that third movie and wrap this all up in glorious animation. I'd be all for that. So, with that, that is wrapping up my review of the first draft of Pacific Rim. Um, I appreciate you guys sitting through this. This is the first time I've done this. Um, you know, I'm making notes, trying to kind of keep things brisk. I'm working on one for King Kong right now. Um, I wanted to do this one first because Kong's a little more in-depth and, um, well, this is, consider this a practice run. But there's a few more of these scripts I want to do that uh, I'll parse over for the next, you know, over the next year or so. But there's uh, there's some great ones. I want to do one for the um, Yonda Bont movie because I got various drafts of that. The fabled Fred Decker uh, script for uh, Steve Miner's Godzilla. Um, there's there's one I'm looking forward to doing called Giant Monsters Are Attacking Tokyo that South Park guys are going to make at one point that is a brilliant, it's a brilliant script. And it's it was meant for like a big family movie that I hope to share with you guys in the near future. So with that, that will wrap up this edition of the Kaiju Kingdom podcast. If you like what you hear, excuse me, like what you hear, find us on Twitter at the Kaiju Kingdom, on Instagram at the Kaiju Kingdom, and on Facebook.com slash the Kaiju Kingdom podcast. Subscribe to us on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcast from. You can also go to our website, the Kaiju Kingdom Podcast, and download each episode directly. I'm currently working on uh, bringing the backlog from our old site to the new site, and I'm doing that on my own, so it's going to take a minute. I've had people inquire about the past episodes. I'm working on them, getting them up for people who are just coming in. I understand that, yes, the podcast feed only goes back to like episode like 40 or something like that that's something i've tried to change but for some reason our host isn't able to um isn't able to provide us the entire listing so uh patience and uh, i'll have that uh, i'll have those up hopefully by the end of summer if you want to go back and listen to some classic episodes some of them aren't, aren't as great some of them are are fantastic um, you'll be able to do that too, and, and I'm also steadily working on getting all of our back catalog up on our YouTube page. So if that is the way you listen to things, you'll be able to listen to our past episodes that, that way as well. And with that, that will wrap up this episode. So for myself and Jessica, who can't be here, thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you next time.